0: Your passage for today is from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and Alexander John Shia says that these verses in the Gospel of Mark are so clear and concise that they may just have been a litany in the early church so that they were prayed or spoken aloud either together or responsibly. So I'm going to ask you to read them with me. We're going to start with verse 4 of chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. Let's read them together. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the last three sermons that I've preached have been from the first part of three different gospels. So the first part of Luke, and then last week, the first part of Matthew, and then this week, the first part of Mark. It's been a good comparison for me because Mark is different Mark is startling. Mark is from the beginning of his gospel immediately urgent. It's as if I feel like I have to brace myself when I read this gospel. I have friends that talk like this, like Mark, friends that just cut to the chase. I mean, I have a kid like this. If he needs something in the middle of the night or if he needs something anytime, there's no, mom, are you awake? Mom, will you wake up so I can ask you something? No, it's more like this. Mom, I'm dying of thirst in here. Mom, I'm burning up. (laughs) Mark's gospel begins not with a polite address. It doesn't begin with a sweet story of Jesus' birth or a description of the family. It begins with a short statement of the theme. The first verse of Mark's gospel says this is the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And then immediately, remember what the prophets told you. Then with quotes from Isaiah and Malachi, and sequentially, Malachi is the very last book in our Old Testament. So it's as if Mark is just picking up right where the Old Testament leaves off. And these quotes from the prophets, from Isaiah and Malachi, describe the day of the Lord, The day of the Lord is an expected time of judgment, when God will finally set things straight. So if your seatbelt isn't fastened by now, the next image will surely jolt you. It's the image of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks and acts like the prophet Elijah. And the scriptures say that he is calling people to get into the water to change their spiritual direction. He calls them to a baptism of repentance. Keith and I celebrated our uh, 27th wedding anniversary this week. And um, you know how the anniversary for 20 years is silver and 50-year anniversary is gold? Well, 27 is junior school basketball. And so for our 27th anniversary, we went to the junior school to enjoy some basketball And when we were well into the first quarter of the game, our coach called a timeout, and from the stands, immediately, an adult male voice said very loudly, too loudly, and with anger, they're walking before they dribble. A hush fell over the crowd, and then there was some murmuring, and in my ear were the words, is that one of our dad's? And I thought, well, that's a valid point. How can we know? It's middle school basketball walking before dribbling is occurring all over the court on both sides. If we get really strict about who's traveling here, we're going to be in this gym until midnight. (laughs) So John the Baptist's point is similar. It's similar and a little more extreme. We're all walking before we dribble. We all do things that separate us from the love of God. Alexander Shia suggests that for the first century Christians, for the first community that receives the gospel of Mark, this would be Christians in Rome. It would be resentment and anger and unforgiveness that they would need to let go of because they're being blamed. They're being persecuted. Resentment, anger, unforgiveness, foul. John calls them all into the water to let go of that resentment, anger, unforgiveness, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, being called into the water isn't a new image. It isn't a new image for the crowd that gathers around the Jordan River. They know well the story of their spiritual ancestors who are called to step into the water of the Red Sea And as they stepped into the water, they leave slavery behind them, and they journey into freedom. So it's as if on the banks of the Jordan River, John turns this very familiar story into theater, into a play. And he turns to those who hear him, to his listeners, and he invites them to be the cast in this Exodus story. He says, step into this water for an exodus of your own, and leave what enslaves you behind you. Our journeys are similar. Baptism is always about leaving behind the things that bind, leaving behind the things that enslave us, that oppress us. And so while we don't re-baptize in our community when we remember our baptism, which we will do this morning, We remember our intention to always set down the things that bind us, the things that oppress us, and we leave them behind us. Well, the biblical story of John calling people into the water isn't over yet. Someone in Mark's gospel, I can't imagine who, gives John the Baptist a microphone. And John the Baptist basically says, you think this is scary? If you think this is scary, well, just wait. Wait. One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. So great is the distance between us that it's more than the distance between a master and a slave. The scripture says that John the Baptist says, I'm unworthy to untie their sandal. So that's a huge, unimaginable social distance, a distance that's greater than the distance between a master and a slave. Who is it then that is coming after this prophet, who has an uncanny resemblance to the to the to Elijah, to the prophet Elijah? Really, it's not much of a riddle. There's just one answer. It has to be the Lord. It has to be the Messiah. And Messiah literally means anointed one. It means anointed one in Greek. The word Messiah is Christos, or Christ. So when we say Jesus the Christ, we're saying Jesus the Anointed One. In theory, the expected Messiah for those in the first century would be a prophet, a priest, or a king. Because that's how you would get someone who was anointed. A prophet would be anointed, a priest anointed, a king anointed. And the common expectation was that the Messiah would conquer their military enemies And set things right in the temple. Cleanse the temple and rebuild it. So simply speaking, this is, in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, a story of the Messiah's anointing. The heavens are torn apart. The Spirit descends like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, you are my Son, beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is anointing, and that's big, no doubt the anointing of the Messiah. But the real shock and awe, the true shock and awe occurs in a line that I think I often dismiss when I read this first chapter. It's a bridge between the two scenes of Jesus' anointing and John baptizing the crowds. It's in verse 9 that we read. And verse 9 says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan." Are you telling me that the anointed one of God gets in the water? The anointed one of God gets in the water with all those other travelers who run before they dribble and is baptized by John? That just doesn't seem right. Barbara Brown Taylor says that this scene of Jesus' baptism at the hands of John has been a continual embarrassment for the church And one of the ways that we can tell that is that it appears in all four of the Gospels, but it shows up differently in all four of the Gospels. Matthew adds that John the Baptist tries to talk Jesus out of being baptized. Luke won't even use the word baptism to describe what happens to Jesus. And the Gospel of John says that John the Baptist also witnessed the Spirit descend upon Jesus. So, You know when you get a disproportionate amount of explanation around an event? It probably happened. The event probably happened. And I suppose like the gospel writers, I'm not exactly sure why it happened. Maybe Jesus knew that a significant part of his role as Messiah would be to demonstrate, to show people how to live and to live well, how to love God and how to love your neighbor, and so he showed them also how to be baptized. I saw a video this week of a father who was trying to teach his child, his toddler, how to make a snow angel in the in the snow on the ground. And so as they were standing up, he first showed her, we're going to lay down in the sand and we're going to do this, and that's going to make a snow angel. And then he picked her up and he laid her on, on her back and he said, Okay, arms up and down, arms up and down, and she went like this. (laughs) And he said, no, arms up and down, he's still standing up. Arms up and down, up and down like this, and she still went like this. Arms up and down, up and down. He was going to have to get in the snow, lay down on his back, and show her how to make that snow angel for her to be able to do it. Maybe this baptism of the Messiah by John the Baptist is simply about demonstration. Maybe it's simply about Jesus showing the crowds how to walk into being loved. There's another very important piece. And I think the very important piece is that this is about identity, your identity and my identity. And we might not be real clear about who we are unless Jesus had been baptized by John. N.T. Wright, who is a theologian, points out in his commentary on this story that the primary role of the Messiah is to represent his people. Not represent his people like a good attorney before an angry judge, but representing his people in that what's true of him Is true of us. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of you and me. That's why we call him Messiah. You and I are called to be baptized to find freedom. Jesus is baptized. When Jesus is baptized, the voice from heaven says, You are my child, beloved. With you I am well pleased. That's my Messiah. He represents me. What's true of him is also true of me. Do you believe it? I'm beginning to. One of my father-in-law's very favorite stories to tell and my children's favorite stories to hear is how he used to wake up his sons when they were teenagers, my husband and his brother, for school. They were hard to get out of bed in the mornings. So he would take a kitchen cup to the bathroom sink that was close to their rooms. He'd fill it with water, and then he'd walk into their bedrooms, and he'd pour a stream of water on their heads. <laughs> okay, it was a different time. <laughs> Back before children were in charge of the house. <laughs> but the best part of the story is that he says that he didn't have to do it too many times. He only had to do it once or twice, just a couple, before the boys would hear the bathroom sink turn on, and they would jump out of bed, feet on the floor. <laughs> when you and I hear the waters of baptism pour, it should only take a time or two before our ears perk up, and we also hear a voice from heaven that says about us, my child, well-loved, pleasing. Will you pray with me?